Welcome to episode four of People Are the Answer. I truly believe that people are the only answer to the world's many problems. I'm Jeffrey M. Zucker, a serial entrepreneur here to learn how innovators are creating outsized, transformational social impact. Today's episode features Christina Dent, founder and president of End It For Good. Christina is tackling drug policy reform in a place that frequently gets skipped over on the topic, the Deep South. Christina and I had an interesting conversation about her story and how she got into changing minds in Mississippi. Here is Christina Dent on People Are the Answer. Christina, thanks so much for joining me on People Are the Answer. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. I'm really excited to be with you guys. Absolutely. It's awesome to have you. And um, can you just start off by just giving a little bit of background and what you do? Yeah, so I am the founder and president of um, End It For Good. We're a nonprofit based in Mississippi, which is where I was born and raised and have lived my whole life, still live today. And we do um, education and advocacy work around ending drug prohibition and switching to um, a health-centered approach to drugs, drug use, and addiction, where we don't use the criminal justice system for it, um, but we really try to approach it from a position of how can we reduce harm to people? And that really is my own story of getting into the work. Um, but yeah, we just want to see people able to thrive more and feel like there's policies that are hindering them, actively harming them. Um, so that's kind of our ultimate goal, but really we see it as, you know, policy change can only happen at the rate at which you can help people change their minds about something and create the momentum that's needed for policy change. And so that's the majority of our work is out in the community, um, doing things, you know, whether it's podcasts or events or speaking engagements that just invite people into this conversation around ending a criminal justice approach to drugs as the best way of reducing harm to the most people. Thank you for sharing. You know, as you know, I love what you guys are doing and we will dig in significantly to end it for good, but I think this question that I ask most people is especially pertinent for you. Can you give us some background on how you grew up? Yeah, so I was born and raised in um, West Jackson in a little tiny house. It was like 900 square feet, like four rooms. Um, my parents were not wealthy by any means. I was homeschooled kindergarten through 12th grade, as were my three brothers. Um, I had a wonderful upbringing. My parents were wonderful people. Um, grew up in a Christian home, politically conservative home, although we were not super active, um, you know, politically. And so my parents were um, really committed to a simple lifestyle. And everything we did kind of revolved around this. So we have this really simple house. My mom is committed to staying at home with us. She never worked during my whole childhood. My dad is committed to working for this small Christian school um, where he's the business administrator. And um, my mom kept like detailed journals all through our childhoods. And in there, she mentions there's a point at which they have $5. Like that's it. The, the next check's coming tomorrow, but all the money they have right now is $5. <laughs> so now my dad had two master's degrees, which is what they came to Mississippi for him to get. So it really, it was a, um, I grew up in kind of a lower income community and home, but high education. And my mom didn't go to college. Um, 
but was incredibly smart and well-read and continued learning throughout, you know, my childhood. So really kind of interesting childhood, um, incredibly high work ethic. My parents were very committed to raising independent children who knew how to work hard, earn their own money, save up for things, manage their money. Um, so the, the messaging all coming up was you work hard, you save up, you pay cash for things. Um, so it was just a really unique, uh, upbringing, even among my friends that we were kind of like, kind of a different kind of doing our own thing, kind of a maverick way of, of life. But that actually ended up helping me uh, later. I think that's part of the reason why, as we'll get into um, changing my own mind and kind of stepping out in this area that I never thought it would be working in, um, I think is a testament to the way that my parents raised us to try to, to think outside the box, try to be open to learning and open to doing things that maybe aren't mainstream, but are really important. It's fascinating to hear that background. And, um, you know, I, it's clear to me that your parents did a tremendous job raising you guys. And um, I thought it was really interesting hearing that your mom kept a journal. And, you know, was that something you were aware of at the time or something you found out about as an adult? Yeah, I always knew that she did because she was writing in it all the time. She'd like write little notes to herself of things she wanted to include. Some of it's just funny stuff that we said as kids that she just wanted to keep track of. And um, so it's really precious to me now. So my mom was diagnosed with cancer when I was 16 and passed away when I was 19. Um, and my dad passed away three years after that of cancer also. So, you know, I look back and say, you know, she had no idea that that she wouldn't be here to kind of relive all of those memories with us, but she kept these amazing journals that I have stacks of them now. And she was a great writer. So they're really entertaining to read. Um, and so it's just really neat to see and to be able to even go back, you know, there's so many questions as an adult that I want to ask my parents and they're not here to answer those, but some of those answers are in those journals from things she wrote about how they were spending their money, how they were um, using their time, the kinds of things they were discussing in their marriage, just all kinds of different things. It's a really amazing treasure to have. I mean, I'm so sorry for your losses, but what an incredible resource to have after the fact. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's really cool to hear the, the impact that that had on you. So um, yeah, so we know ended for good is where you are now, you know, what was sort of your path that led you there? So I started, I went to a Christian liberal arts university in Jackson. I got a degree in Bible. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I just thought, uh, you know, I want to like get married and have kids. And I don't know that I really want a career. Um, I ended up working. I did get married right out of, um, college to my husband who I've been married to for 16 years now. And right out of college, I started working for um, a tech startup uh, as their billing supervisor. Um, I didn't have any accounting background, but it, I'm a really detailed person. So <laughs> I like things, you know, coming out correctly and collecting payments. And um, so I, I worked there for five years. It grew really quickly. I started as their 12th employee. I left when they had over 150, five years later um, in multiple countries. So it was a really cool environment to be part of in this just fast paced quickly growing um, company. So I left, I was a stay-at-home mom for nine years and then um, spent most of that time still being active and doing things. I'm a doer. So I, you know, leading ministries at church, things like that. Um, but I got into End It For Good by getting into foster care. So my husband and I became foster parents while I was staying home with our other kids. And through that, I met um, the moms of one of our uh, the mom of one of our foster sons. Her name was Joanne. 
And she just let me into seeing somebody who was um, struggling with addiction in just a totally different way. So when Beckham was brought to um, our house after he was born, she had used drugs while she was pregnant. So he was like automatically removed um, post-birth. They brought him to our house and we had him for about a week before his first visit. So I brought him to his first visit at our local child welfare office. And as I'm getting his car seat out of the car, I'm turning around in the parking lot. I have not met Joanne yet, but I have all sorts of preconceptions of the kind of person she's like, who, who's the type of mother who would use drugs while they were pregnant. And I turn around and here is this woman literally sprinting across the parking lot and she's weeping and runs over, starts kissing Beckham and talking to him. And I feel really suspicious thinking, you know, all the reasons why this isn't real. It's not true. She doesn't really love him this much. I just didn't know anything about addiction. I didn't understand anything about what was going on. And so when she went to inpatient drug treatment after that one visit that she had with him for an hour, um, she would call me from treatment and she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And she would sing to him over the phone while I was sitting there and I, oh my, it just tore my heart out because I'm simultaneously wanting to kind of judge and condemn her for the things she did. And I'm also seeing the reality, which is she's a mom like me who loves her son just as much as I love my three boys. And her addiction is not because she's a terrible person. It's just a totally kind of separate, you know, health struggle, really serious one. Um, but my goodness, what would happen if we put her in jail? It's not going to fix it. It's going to leave Beckham without a mom. Um, this is just crushing. So for somebody who's kind of a lifelong learner, who loves details, who wants to kind of find the truth, um, I couldn't just stop at, I hope she doesn't get arrested. I just, it really like opened, kind of pulled the curtain back to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I know that we're putting millions of people just like her in prison all the time. And if I can see that it's not the right thing for her, is it the right thing for all of these other people who are also dealing with addiction? So that kind of started me down this journey of trying to learn. Now, um, I was not somebody who was naturally like open to changing drug policy. Somebody had asked me a couple of years before this, what I thought about legalizing drugs. I literally was so angry. I left the room. Like I could not even conceive that anybody who had any sense at all could even ask that question. So I was not open to rethinking drug policy. It wasn't an easy sell. Um, but really meeting to Joanne and seeing the impact that this could have on her and Beckham. And here I am, you know, we're in foster care because we want to help vulnerable kids and we're making, you know, significant investments of time and mental energy to do that. And I'm beginning to rethink, what does that really mean to care for vulnerable kids? Is this another frontier of that, that we have missed that we're inappropriately addressing the primary reason children come into foster care, which is drug related issues. Um, and that journey ended up, I ended up kind of not just rethinking, should we put people in prison for possessing drugs, but really just learning about the whole issue and realizing it's not just consumers, it's the whole market. It's, it's all the pieces of it that are made worse by prohibition, increasing crime, increasing contamination and overdose deaths, increasing destabilization of families. Um, and that just changed my mind on the whole issue. And I thought this affects so many people. Um, I feel like 
I need, I want to do something about this. This is somewhere that maybe my voice can have an impact because I'm somebody who changed their mind. And I understand what it's like to be uh, scared about what could happen uh, as somebody who doesn't use illegal drugs and never has. Um, maybe I can help other people who also are coming from similar backgrounds and value systems to see this isn't a change in values. This is a change in the way we work those values out. It's a change in seeing what's the best representation of the values I already have. That's what happened. I didn't like set aside everything I believed. I just came to realize there's actually a different solution that better fits with the things I already believe. Yeah. I love that. You know, just sort of just kind of reframing the the picture a little bit for, for people that grew up in a similar way, I think is just unbelievably impactful when you, when you show the compassion um, that's involved. And, you know, I also grew up in the South being from South Carolina and um, you know, drugs were certainly demonized. And I think we both similarly grew up thinking like, Oh, drugs are wrong. And then we got introduced in similar ways and, you know, became passionate about helping these people that, are getting treated with injustice um, and getting their lives made worse. So, you know, I, I really commend you. And I, I think, you know, not only did you have this huge flip, but you also translated that into being able to show sort of the same thing to other people like you and people that most, you know, in drug policy or criminal justice reform can't imagine getting their minds changed. You're the person doing that. And I just think it's, it's unbelievably valuable um, you know, people that are more conservative are going to be harder to change. They're only going to listen to certain people. So, you know, really thank you for kind of translating that to that population. Yeah, that's really, that's that translate word is a great word to use because, you know, we don't do our own research. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a scientist. I'm not, you know, I'm not a drug addiction expert, but we have found that there is so much information out there about drug prohibition increasing harm on every level. And there's a whole bunch of people in the general public who aren't hearing that information. It, it's not, there's a gap between what we know and what the general public knows. And so we see ourselves as kind of translators of that, of taking this information from experts that's already out there and helping people connect to that information in a way that resonates with them and it's easily accessible. You know, they're not going to go read the papers that people write about this stuff, but we can read the papers and, and repackage the content into different ways that we can reach people who, you know, might not even think that they're interested. You know, that's the, the initial hardest part is helping people to see this impacts you. This is impacting your world and your community and whether or not you use drugs, this is something that needs your attention because it does impact your life. Um, so yeah, helping people to kind of make those connections and, um, reaching people who are opposed to change. You know, it's really easy when you're kind of an activist or an advocate person to preach to the choir. It's just the, it's the easiest people to talk to and they love what you're saying. So, so the inertia is just like towards these people who already agree with you, um, which is great. It's great to be with, you know, among people who are like-minded and yet, if we want to see change happen, that means you have to invite more people who don't already agree with you on a journey to potentially change their minds. Now, we don't own anyone's mind, so we can't force anyone to change their minds. But for me, I change my mind because I learn new information. 
I, I wasn't sitting there my whole life going, I want to hurt people. I want to increase overdoses. I don't care if there's more crime. You know, I grew up in a pretty high crime area of West Jackson. Uh, I dealt with a lot of anxiety as a child because of that. Um, you know, if, if somebody had said, you know, your childhood could have been different if the drug war wasn't playing out all around you, um, you know, I, I never made that connection that something I did care about was actually part of changing our drug policy. So part of it is just kind of helping people make those connections and seeing how it impacts them so that even though they're opposed, they have a connection point um, to an issue. So that's just a totally different way of thinking about an audience to reach rather than reaching people who are already aligned with you, which is what most of us kind of tend to do. And it's, you know, we have to fight against it all the time is, is this messaging only reaching people who already agree with us? Or are we continuing to be um, productive and do a great job at inviting new people into this conversation so that we can increase that momentum? That's, you know, great mindset to have with this work. And I'm just, uh, you know, looked at the core values listed on your website. And I would imagine that those are core values that you had, you know, before you knew anything about this. And it's, I love how you sort of paint the picture of how they fit into the work that you're doing. And, you know, just example of a few life, health, strong family, safe communities, um, among others. And uh, I just think that you do such a good job, you know, making the message clear. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. We, it's really important. Those kind of core values are, um, help us keep on track. I mean, as, as your core values should, but it's important because it is so easy to get that kind of mission drift where, you know, the, the people who are most closely involved, the people who are employed at end it for good, you know, our team is so passionate about it. It's, you know, it's, we need those to keep reminding us, these are the things we need to keep showing people why this matters. Just because we see that it's going to save lives doesn't mean that everybody else immediately makes that connection. How can we help people see this as a way to value life and value health and value families and communities? Yeah. And, you know, I, I can understand, or I appreciate that, you know, you guys say we, we do not celebrate, encourage, or trivialize drug use. I think that, you know, that's a good perspective. And, um, you know, I think all of the changes going on in drug policy in general are working to long-term decriminalization, but, you know, given that you don't celebrate, I'm curious, you know, how do you feel about, um, the changes in cannabis laws that we've been seeing and kind of the direction that's going? Yeah. So I see those as really positive. Um, so there's a tension for me kind of in the work that, that I do because I'm, I've never used cannabis. I don't have any interest in it other than if I needed it medically for some reason. Um, but that's not just because it's cannabis. I don't drink alcohol either, but I just don't like it. I just don't appreciate the taste. So I don't drink. Um, so I see it as, um, you know, maybe the better way really to say sort of the position that I came to is I'm anti-prohibition more so than I'm sort of pro-legalization. So when I see a marijuana legalization law passed, to me, that signals people are not going to be arrested anymore who don't need to be arrested. And that's a really positive thing. So I don't have to look at, you know, every dispensary or every person out there smoking marijuana and like say, hurrah, I am so glad that you are out there smoking marijuana. I can say, you know what? You shouldn't be arrested for that yep. choice that you're making. Just like the person who's having a glass of wine shouldn't be arrested for that choice that they're making. Um, so I can, I can hold those intention and say, you know what? I'm still going to 
tell my own boys about the potential dangers of substance use. You know, I don't want them out there using heroin either. And yet right now they're more likely to die because drugs are prohibited and they're contaminated and they're more likely to be arrested because, you know, there's just all of these other harms. So, you know, in the same way that I don't want them smoking cigarettes, meanwhile, I'm not lobbying to have people arrested for smoking cigarettes. You know, I'm, right. I'm teaching them, I'm parenting them. And I think as somebody who's a small government kind of girl, you know, that's my role. That's not the government's role to say, we're going to sort of craft all these laws to try to craft your behavior. Um, that's my role as the parent to teach my children how to make good choices about the things that they uh, choose to do and, and not do. So I definitely, I'm always celebrating those wins. Um, and I celebrate them from kind of a, a human flourishing perspective of the harm that will no longer be done. Um, and I also celebrate it because for a lot of people, um, especially with cannabis, their, uh, the ability for them to use that for, um, medical purposes that improve their life, um, is really significant. And I've heard so many stories from people. Um, so interestingly, I changed my mind about drug policy completely before I ever actually believed that there was medical uses for cannabis. <laughs> I kind of was in that camp of like, this is just a way that they're trying to get us to pass you know, cannabis legalization to say that there's medical benefits. And then I started talking to people and reading and was realized, oh my goodness, yes, there, there absolutely are medical benefits for a lot of people. And as I, even as I think back through, you know, my own parents' cancer journeys, that was, you know, we, we still don't have marijuana dispensaries in Mississippi. Um, that's a complicated issue. Hopefully we will soon, but, um, as I think back through and watching them go through, uh, for my mom, the nausea of chemotherapy, um, for both of them, opioid resistant pain. And that was never on our radar that there was anything else that they could have tried. Um, so for me, it's, there's, you know, kind of the work that I do is sort of anti-prohibition, but there's still this part of me that feels passionately that people, um, should have access to substances that could potentially improve their life, particularly if they're in situations like that. It is to me just, um, inhuman that we don't allow patients to have a full range of options, um, for significant suffering like that. So yeah. I think that's for a lot of different reasons I can celebrate those law changes. Yeah, no, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think you articulated that really well. Um, you know, there's ways to be anti-prohibition anti without necessarily being pro-maximum cannabis consumption, but right, you yes. know, while also still celebrating the medical properties of the plant. So um, I think, think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yep. I think if more people understood that those things can coexist, I think that's a big part of it. People People who are who don't want to consume cannabis themselves assume that if they're supporting it, that they're sort of supporting this, you know, maximum consumption kind of mindset. And I, I just think even most people who consume cannabis aren't thinking about it that way. You know, they're thinking about it like most people think about alcohol. It's something they do recreationally on, you know, the weekend or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, I I'm a that, cannabis consumer. I'm, you know, always happy to talk about it. I try to remove the stigma from it, you know, by explaining to people that it's a regular part of my life, you know, for whether it's, for recreational use, the way someone might drink a glass of wine or may, or for when it's something that helps me go to sleep. Yeah. So I think there's, 
there is such a broad range. If we think about other policies, let's say like speed limits, it's not like we say, well, I can't agree with speed limits because this other guy over here who doesn't agree with me on anything else agrees with speed limits. We just have such a strange way of thinking about drug policy as though, you know, I can't agree with it if there's anyone who agrees with it that I don't feel like I identify with. Um, so we're just trying to kind of expand that and say, look, there's people who want cannabis legal because they want to use it. And there's a whole bunch of people who want cannabis legal who don't really care to use it. Um, and, and we can all agree on the same policy. We can support the same things, even if it's for different reasons. And that's okay. We do that on a host of issues. We can do that here too. Yeah. Um, well, I think you, you paint a great picture there. And um, you know, I know one book that you mentioned frequently is Chasing the Scream um, by Johan Hari. And I know you've used that effectively as a tool. So, you know, is that a good place for people that are skeptical to start? Absolutely. Um, so that book is kind of a 100 year history, but it's really grippingly written. Um, it includes a lot of research, but the research is presented all through just the story of the author's own journey on um, you know, learning about drugs, drug policy, addiction, and it includes lots of other people's stories who have lived these different aspects of harm from prohibition. So we have given out, as an organization, we've given out over 2,500 copies of Chasing the Scream now to people, almost all of them in Mississippi. Um, so if you think, you know, Mississippi, nobody is interested in change there. What we've found is, yes, they are. They're interested in learning. They're hesitant about change. You know, a lot of these ideas sound really radical, um, even though I would make the case that prohibition was really kind of the radical idea that we could eradicate substances from the face of the earth and punish people out of using um, things that they perceive, you know, improve their life and maybe do improve their life. So um, yes, definitely a great place to start to read that book. It's just I, our organization actually started, End It For Good started as a um, book discussion so I like had a couple of friends together at a restaurant. We discussed Chasing the Scream. And it was just this really kind of magical event of, wow, I cannot believe there's 12 people in this room that are discussing, you know, ending drug prohibition. This is crazy. And then we did it again. And there was 25 people. And we did it again. There was 40 people and all new people. And they were inviting their friends. And it was just really amazing to see people are interested in this. This might actually be something that's helpful to people. And now, um, now we host events all over the state. We've done 26 events across Mississippi. We've hosted over a thousand people um, who have come. And now we don't do book discussions. We do presentations kind of of um, content uh, sort of based on the book, but really my journey of changing my mind and what I learned that changed my mind. And then they can take a book with them if they want to continue learning more. But um, yeah, if as particularly if people are listening, maybe they've already changed their own mind, but they have a lot of people they want to influence. Um, that book is just, we have found it to be a great resource, even for people who don't agree with the author's um, perspective. So he's not a Christian and he's not conservative, um, the man who wrote the book. And yeah, he writes in a very open, curious um non-confrontational kind of way of just kind of presenting information and at the book kind of saying, this is where it leads me, but you can make your own decision. Um, and that has been really helpful for people to be able to, to read and not feel like um, I'm being forced to agree with this, but rather I'm reading a lot of 
you know, research and interesting stories. And I, I can come to my own conclusion at the end of that. Well, that chasing the scream is, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. And, um, hopefully plenty of people listening will be reading that soon. And, you know, you're obviously doing a ton of work in Mississippi and there's still a ton of work to be done there. That said, do you have plans to try to expand to other conservative areas of the country? Yeah, our hope is to, to do that. So our hope is to continue to grow this work. Um, we do primarily work in Mississippi, although we've begun developing more kind of national partnerships. And part of what we would hope to see is for other national organizations to um, to bring this particular aspect of policy change into their circles that they're working on. So, you know, they might be working on something like um, changing drug possession from a criminal penalty to a civil penalty or something like that. And what we would want to see is for more and more organizations to expand that if they're already working on criminal justice to expand further into specifically drug policy, because, you know, drug policy is the engine that drives the criminal justice system, the, you know, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated, if you trace back their incarceration to sort of the, the cause of what initiated that arrest or even you know the search of their car, whatever it might be, you come back to drug prohibition over and over and over again. So we would love to see other organizations um, just really taking this on, whether it's just with cannabis um, policy or whether it's continuing to, to work on other substances as well. We would love to see that. And we'd just love to see in other states um, new kind of conservative drug policy reform organizations. Uh, for us, it has just been important to make, um, you know, people tend to think if you're talking about changing drug policy, that you're a more progressive person, that you're kind of further on the left. And we just want to make a, a clear case that this is good policy, no matter where you are on the spectrum. This is good conservative policy. It's good progressive policy. It's good libertarian policy. It just, no one is winning right now. There is no one, there's no political camp that is, is you know, getting a better world out of um, drug prohibition. Certainly people are making money off of it. Um, but the world is not a better place for, for anybody because of it. And so we yes. really want to continue making that case. And we want to continue seeing um, more conservative people being able to see that this is consistent. This isn't like asking them to change political parties or you know moving them to the left. This is just saying, look, if you want lives saved, strong families, safe communities, this is good policy for you. This helps to do that. The more that we can do that um, and continue expanding that into other states and into other organizations, we see those as um, the next frontier for us on growth. It's really exciting to, to think about you getting your message out further. And, um, you know, you've added some staff uh, over your time with End It For Good. And, um, you know, you mentioned your presentations are a lot about your experience, but I think you also you talk about experiences of your staff members or, or they do it personally. Yeah, so there's four of us that are full-time now. Um, we have a CEO, outreach director, marketing and events coordinator, and then um, me as the founder and president. And there's actually, so three out of the four of us um, all do similar presentations, but with our own personal stories um, mixed in. Instead of, you know, my story, it will be Brett or Angela's story. Um, and all of us have very different experiences. All four of us have changed our mind on the issue, and we all have different 
ways that we came here. Angela is in recovery from opioid and heroin addiction. Um, Brett has had family members struggle with addiction, has walked that with them. Uh, I came to it through foster care. Uh, Jennifer, who does our marketing at events, came to it just really through kind of being exposed to uh, the concepts and saying, oh, that makes sense. I don't really have a personal connection, but this just makes sense to me. Uh, so it's really, it's a great team to have because we each bring different perspectives as we're, as we're developing content and things like that. We each bring a different perspective of this is how I might have heard that prior to changing my mind, um, you know, as somebody directly impacted or as somebody walking with a family member. So it's really neat just to see how that has grown. We haven't really we haven't looked for that. We've just found the right people to be on the bus, but it's just turned out that when you get the right people on the bus, you get a lot of great things happening. For sure. And it's uh, great that all of you have gone through that process that you're trying to help other people through. I'm sure that's incredibly valuable and, um, you know, talked about kind of things you're doing to grow. Um, I believe you guys have a conference coming up. We do. So November 3rd in um, Hattiesburg, Mississippi, which is just a little South of Jackson, um, they've just been, Hattiesburg, we've had just a great deal of interest. Um, they're a conservative community, but really want to look forward to see how can they improve life for the citizens of their community. So it's a great little, um, it, it's just a great example of how a community can have um, conservative values largely and see this as kind of, you know, I think this might be part of the path forward for us as a community for Mississippi as a state. Um, so we're hosting that and we have people coming in from uh, other parts of the country. We have Trevor Burris coming in from Cato Institute, Kent Dunnington coming in from Biola University to talk about addiction. Um, then we have panels with several legislators from Mississippi, um, several criminal justice professionals, several faith leaders. Um, so yeah, we're, we're super excited about it. It's just going to be kind of uh, the magic of our smaller events spread out over a whole day and we're, we're thrilled. We just can't wait. This has been like a dream for a couple of years to grow these events into something um, bigger and now it's happening. So we can't wait. That's so exciting. And, um, you know, it's really revolutionary and, you know, pioneering and especially in your market um, to do something like this. So uh, congratulations, and I'm excited for it and hope it goes off great. So you've got this great conference coming up, and uh, I know you've also been spending a lot of time lately working on a book. I have. So I took about 10 weeks this summer working on um, a memoir. I think of it kind of as a, a memoir on a mission. So it's a lot about my childhood, like we were talking about this really unique childhood and family experience. Um, and then going into how we got into foster care, what that was like, um, meeting Joanne, this journey of changing my mind on drug policy and really just ending kind of with an invitation for people to think about um, what we're doing and how we're helping families like Joanne and Beckham's, how we could help more families, uh, many of them kind of the most vulnerable families among us. And so that has been um, maybe the hardest thing I have ever <laughs> done in a professional capacity is writing this book. Uh, it is just so difficult to kind of encapsulate experiences and figure out, you know, which, what should go in there and what shouldn't go in there. And there's so much I want to say and so much that I've learned along the way. Um, so I'm really excited about it. We ended up um, kind of, I took time out. We, we had a, a 
span of time over the summer where it would work for me to be gone. And so um, I took that time. I worked out of a different office from our, our primary office here in Jackson and worked on that. And it's almost to a completion of a first draft um, and no timeline on when it will come out yet, but I'm really excited. I hope it's just another piece. We're always looking for what's another piece. What's another way to reach people. What's another way to invite them into um, this conversation. And we have always used stories as part of everything that we do. Every presentation that we do is, is driven. We're always careful to say you should never make policy decisions based on just a personal story or a personal, you know, feeling or experience that you had. And yet personal stories help us connect to the real people that are impacted by policies. And so that's what we hope for for this book to do is just be a fun memoir that's interesting and fun and, you know, about this interesting, crazy uh, childhood kind of family that I grew up in. Um, and also just this uh, kind of an expansion of the main presentation we do, which I was honored to give as a TEDx talk um, in 2019. So it's kind of taking that, you know, 20 minute version of what we're talking about and kind of just expanding that out, letting people have more opportunity to kind of delve into that and sit with it a little bit, see how it works out a little bit, hear stories of other people. Um, that was a fun thing that I got to do as part of kind of the writing of the book was just interviewing other people. And, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who changed my mind, but I don't have any lived experience in the criminal justice system. So, so what does that look like to kind of humanize that for other people? So um, it should be a really great kind of combination of memoir, storytelling, letting other people tell their stories, and inviting people to kind of consider, reconsider what we're doing with drugs. It sounds like there's going to be some well-rounded perspectives there, and I look forward to reading it in the future. And, you know, you mentioned how impactful stories can be. It's certainly the case, you know, having watched your TEDx talk, it's it's really powerful, you know, to, to hear it from your own perspective. And, you know, in my work in criminal justice and drug policy reform, um, especially, you know, in cannabis legalization, uh, it, stories seem to be what what does it or, or experiences. So, you know, I'll be meeting with a legislator one year who's staunchly against medical cannabis. I'll come back a year or two later and they're like, you know, my cousin, aunt, uncle, brother, friend just had this incredible experience with medical cannabis. It either saved their life or significantly decreased their suffering, whatever it, it is. And now they're on board. Now they're, you know, huge proponents. And sometimes it takes either that experience or at least someone that you can relate to giving you their experience to get you to understand. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's kind of always this, especially with drug policy, it has, we have, we tend to have such visceral reactions to it that even if we can see lots of data related to it, we still have this for a lot of us, this just internal sense that I can't, I would be giving up some significant portion of my values. And when we can kind of connect the data points with no this is this is your values are that you want to help people and this the data that you're seeing is true and it's also true that it's actually going to help real people uh, i think that's where we like you're saying you see this kind of change happen of okay this does make sense and this is something i want to be on board with right it's kind of the breaking through that wall of like what people always quote new and you know allowing them to realize like, maybe I was taught wrong 
you know, for a long time and need to see it from a new perspective. And once you sort of start getting a crack in that wall, it, it comes down. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the process of rethinking something, um, you know, that's what a lot of people, a lot of us have things we want other people to change their minds on. And I don't think we often think about or have a lot of compassion for just how difficult it is to change your mind about something. It's just really stressful. That's why humans don't like to do it. We just try to keep anything that kind of pokes into our current worldview. We try to shut it down immediately. And it is really stressful and it's really hard. And ultimately what you're doing is opening yourself to the idea that you've been wrong about something and nobody wants to be wrong about anything ever. So the more that we can, we think about it as, you know, the more that we can sort of make that, um, that vulnerability feel less vulnerable for people. You know, if people come to our events, put always a significant portion of the time is spent on audience feedback to the, to the content that we're giving them and they get to, you know, get a microphone and give their thoughts. Um, and we never correct them. Like they could say something that is just patently untrue. Uh, and they do sometimes that's just like statistically not true. And we don't correct them. And that's part of making their vulnerability to share their perspective, not a weapon that we're going to use against them. And just say, look, you can, you can share, you can have your say, and we can have a dialogue nobody's going to come back and like hit you over the head publicly and, you know, make you feel stupid or anything like that. Um, because if, you know, for people to kind of engage, they're really stepping into this vulnerable place of like, oh, whoa, like, could I be wrong? Could I have missed something here? And that to me is just this beautiful thing. If people are willing to do that. I just want to be so careful to hold that risk that they're taking in very soft hands as a, as a way of honoring what they're doing, which is opening themselves up to the idea that potentially they have been wrong. Um, if we want them to change their mind, that's the process we're asking them to go through. And we can help that process happen by being gentle in the way that we're handling it. Yeah, uh, certainly the case. And um I think the work you're doing is incredibly powerful. And, you know, I, I know that your kind of epiphany moment was um, as a foster mom and, you know, seeing uh, Joanna, right? Yeah. Yeah. And seeing Joanna with, with Beckham, you know, is really what started to change your mind. But uh, since you've started the work, has there been a moment where you just really saw the impact of your work that hit you? Yeah. So part of what I love about doing events is, and of having feedback from those events at the events is that you're kind of getting this real time. People are kind of talking straight out of their mind at that point. They haven't had a lot of time to kind of think through anything. It's kind of initial feedback. Um, and so we've had a couple of things that have happened that I'm, I are just kind of those moments where you're like, yes, this is, this is it. So we did an event on the Mississippi coast um, this was about two years ago, really in the, just the beginning of kind of where these book discussions are turning into like, this is a real thing and this is an organization. And we, um, so we got there, we were setting up early at the, um, kind of in a side room of a restaurant and this man walks in and he's, um, very proudly from kind of the, um, uh, rural area in Mississippi and, uh, he's probably close to 70 and he just walks in the room. He doesn't even say hello. He just walks in the room. He's the first person there. And he says, 
I have been waiting 50 years for this. I said, why is that? And he said, because when marijuana was criminalized back in the 1970s, all of us knew it wasn't going to work and it was the wrong thing to do. And we've watched it play out for 50 years. It hasn't worked. It was the wrong thing to do. And now somebody is talking about it. So that was just like, this is amazing here. You know, all my life, I'm growing up in Mississippi, never thinking about it. And yet there are people who are thinking about it, who are going, you know, this is a disaster. We need to change this. Then probably my favorite, um, and this more so just has to do with my own personal values is um, we were presenting at a class at a um, university in Mississippi and there was um, the professor was there and there were some other people who had come to the class. They knew we were in town and had come even though they weren't students in the class. And so they afterwards, um, a woman came up to me who uh, was an attorney and she said, you know, this is really a pro-life issue. And I said, yes, absolutely. If I had to to distill why I care about ending drug prohibition, it's really because of this value of like every human life. And so it was really neat for me to see. Now there's lots of people who would not be in the kind of pro-life spectrum who agree with ending drug prohibition, but for her to see, to be able to hear our case and say, you know what, this isn't, this isn't against these values. This is actually squarely in line with values across the political spectrum, certainly in the pro-life area. Um, I just, that really just filled my soul to see somebody else see this connection point that I see um, and be able to kind of say, yeah, this, this makes sense from this value system. And then right. just like last week we had, I did a um, interview on another podcast and a man emailed me from that. And he said, you know, we just had a vote on marijuana legalization where he lived. He said, I voted against it. Um, and I listened to your interview and I would have voted for it if I had been able to vote after I heard it. And I love that. Like that's, that's what we do is just help people see this. And he went on to explain, you know, I just hadn't, there were just things I'd never thought about before and he's a Christian. And so he said, you know, I just had some concerns and now I realize it's not just those concerns that are part of this equation. There's all these other pieces of it that I hadn't thought about, all the harm that was coming from prohibiting it. And yeah, now I can see where allowing it to be legal is actually you know, better. I still have concerns, but that doesn't mean that it should still be illegal. Right. So, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's truly a human rights issue. And I think when people start to realize that, uh, especially that hold certain values, it, it goes a long way. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I like to talk about is just, and we talked a little bit about it before, but just how childhood kind of shapes where you go as an adult. And um, I'm curious if there was an experience in your childhood that showed you the importance of giving back, um, you know, on either side of the equation. Yeah, my parents were great at that as well. Um, and I see that as just, they really showed us kind of, it doesn't have to be big and huge what you do. It can be small things as well. So they didn't have a ton of money. Um, so they weren't really giving back on a financial spectrum, although they did give generously out of what they had, but a couple of things. So one of the things my dad did, um, they had a lot of families at this small Christian school who wanted that education for their children, but couldn't afford it. And he would allow them to do janitorial work for the school 
in exchange for um, money off of their tuition. Now, this greatly increased the amount of stress and headache in his life because there, I mean, I can't tell you the number of conversations and we had this 900 square foot house. So you can hear like all conversations about everything. Like there's no privacy really. So I'm overhearing conversations between my parents all the time. You know, he comes home from work and it's kind of debriefing. Um, and just how many times there were families didn't show up to do the work or they came and did the work, but it wasn't actually done well. You know, these aren't janitorial trained families. They're just families who are getting a discount on their tuition and trying to make it work. And just seeing him over and over again, trying to work it out and realizing, you know, this is a headache for me, but it's a way that I can help another family to try to access something that is not financially available to them otherwise. So that was a really cool thing to see. And there's no telling how many lives he truly majorly impacted from there. I mean, unless you're keeping hard data on what happened to those kids that he helped and the families he helped, I mean, I'm sure they've gone on to some really great things that wouldn't have happened if it weren't for his efforts. Yeah. You know, I listen to people talk about the impact that he had on them, the children who went to that school during the years that he worked there and just the impact of just his character and his hard work and, and the things that he would do, you know, really going above and beyond to try to, to meet a person where they were instead of just like, well, I'm sorry, if you can't afford it, you can't come here. Or, you know, you didn't do the work one time and I don't have time to mess with this. You know, I'm going to move on to somebody else. Just really trying to understand where people are coming from, the challenges that they're facing and meeting them. And so my mom, um, she was, she just loved children. She loved us. She loved all children. And when I was about nine, um, there was a family in our church who the mom got cancer. So this is long before she was diagnosed. Um, and the mom ended up passing away. The little girl was of the, the mom was in my mom's Sunday school class. And so my mom was teaching this little, um, five-year-old daughter of this woman who passed away. And my mom just, she had always dealt with a lot of fear over her own death and a, a fear that she was going to die before she was able to raise us. And so as she watched these three kids, um, the little girl was the youngest and now their mom wasn't there. And she just thought, you know, what can I do um, as a way to kind of honor this woman who is now not able to be there? And so she went for about six months after um, the mother passed away, she would go on most Saturdays and she would take me with her. So I got to just experience this as a nine-year-old. Um, she would take me with her and drive out to their house out in the country. And she would just bring some books, like read aloud books, Berenstain Bear books that she read to us. And we would go and spend about an hour and a half at their house. And she would just read them books. And then we would play a game together, like some, you know, Candyland or something like that. And that was it. Then we leave, we go back home, we go, you know, the next week she called her dad and say, Hey, can I come out and just, you know, read and read some books and play a game with the kids. So I got to experience that. And it was, you know, as a nine-year-old, you don't really realize what you're experiencing, but the impact is profound as, especially as I get older and think back to that. So it had been about 25 years since I have been in contact with any of the kids from that family. We didn't know them well. My mom was not good friends with their mom. This wasn't like, you know, this is my best friend and I've got to take care of her kids. They didn't really know each other. Um, and so I, I went on Facebook and I thought, I wonder if I can find any of those kids. So I found the daughter who was five and in my mom's class. And I just messaged her and said, you know, I don't, 
it's been 25 years since I've even, you know, talked to you or anything, but yeah, you know, I was thinking about this experience and including it in the book that I'm writing. And I just wanted to get her permission. I, I just have a, um, kind of a hang up about using people's stories without asking their permission. So all the stories I'm, you know, I tell are people whose permission I've asked. Um, and I said, you know, I just want to know if you would be comfortable with that. Um, and she responded right back and she said, I tell people about that experience all the time. I credit your mom coming to read to us with helping me overcome a learning dif um, difficulty with reading and becoming a lifelong reader. And she has since become, um, she did hospice work for a while. And she said, I was just telling somebody last week about your mom coming and reading to us and the profound impact that that had. So, you know, my mom didn't wow. do it for five years afterwards. It was like six months. It was just for this one season, this is one thing I can do because I see a need in front of me that's just a simple thing that I can do. I can just go read some books and play a game with some kids who are grieving the loss of their mom. And, and now to be able to see that profound impact 25 years later, um, I just think people are, sometimes we think we have to change the world for it to matter. It's not, we can change the world and that matters. We can also just impact one life and that matters just as much. Yeah, um, that's amazing. Uh, just after all those years to get that feedback is um, remarkable. And it's I'm sure it's a tie back to your mom for you. And um, that's awesome. So clearly you had some great examples of giving back. And I think it's important you highlight, you know, even if you don't have a lot of means, there's still a lot of ways to give back. Um, and I think that's important for everyone to be aware of. And, um, you know, through this journey to, to where you are now is, has there been anyone that you consider a mentor? Yeah. So I've had a lot of people that have helped along the way. Um, and it's been helpful for me to realize that nobody is self-made, you know, there's everyone standing on the shoulders of a lot of other people who have helped them along the way. And that's been true for me as well. And starting in it for good and all these just unique situations that happen that are like, wow, you know, I, it feels like, you know, is it fair that I just haven't kind of done this all on my own and, um, and talking to more people who have started organizations and done nonprofit work or done, you know, started their own companies or whatever the case may be to realize, no, this is, this is, everyone is standing on the shoulders of other people. Everyone, you might just see the one person, but it's really been a, a huge effort of people giving back to them and saying, you know, somebody taught me this and I'm going to teach this to you. Um, and so I've had a lot of people locally who have just helped me to kind of get through this process of going from yeah, a book discussion on a Thursday night with friends to <laughs> starting an organization. Um, but there's a lot of people really, so I love to read and still uh, read a good bit. Um, so recently on the people I don't know, but I still consider a mentor spectrum, Jonah Berger would be at the top of that list. So he has, he teaches at the Wharton school. He wrote three books, um, the first of which is called uh, Contagious. Actually, I'm not sure if that's the first one he wrote, but that's the first one I read. It's called Contagious, Why Things Catch On. And I read that book and we ended up reading it as a team. We read a book together, chapter a week. And it was like this light bulb moment of why the events that we've done have been successful. So they've been really successful and we haven't been quite sure like, okay, well, there's, a, there's a magic happening. There's a lightning in a bottle here, 
but we created them based on just what felt like the right thing to do for the audience we wanted to reach. Um, and so reading that book was like, oh, there's actually research that we stumbled into following on how you reach people <laughs> with ideas that you want to then catch fire and continue on growing. Um, so I love all of his work. We've read all of his, all three of his books now. Uh, he's just such a down to earth writer, uh, very smart. Um, and one of my most, one of the things I'm most interested in is, uh, you know, how ideas move, how change takes shape, how um, momentum builds in a movement, how people change their minds, and then how uh, something catalyzes them to take action on something they believe. All of those things are, that's kind of what we do as an organization. And that's what he writes about is, is those things. So um, I feel like he's like a mentor from afar <laughs> through his work. Um, and then there's a, uh, Dr. Bruce Alexander has done a lot of work related to addiction over the last 50 years and really was one of the pioneers of saying, we have gotten this wrong. We have been focusing on a drug or a substance. Um, and that's not what drives an addiction. It's, it's the reasons behind why people are using that substance. Um, and he has just been so just a, a wonderful kind of compassionate, willing to share anything that he knows, willing to share his time. Um, and I, I've just loved that. It was, it was a great example to me. I emailed him. I found his email address on the internet. I didn't know him. I didn't have an introduction to him from somebody else. Um, and I just emailed him and said, Hey, we're doing these events in Mississippi. This was, you know, at the beginning of these things before I'd even started in it for good. And I just wanted you to know how much, you know, your work has meant to me and has helped me re re understand addiction. And he wrote back like an hour later, this just lovely long email about how interested he was in this work and Mississippi, what an interesting place to do it in. And if he could ever be of assistance, let him know. And, you know, we just corresponded back and forth and talked on the phone. And he just did a, um, a live event with us on Facebook a couple of days ago. And I, I, I say him because there's a lot of people who have done similar things, but he was one of the first people in kind of the drug policy reform movement that I ever reached out to. And his response of just this open door, open-hearted welcome, we want everyone. It just showed me this is not an exclusive club. This isn't an in crowd that I'm not part of. Um, this is a, a group of people who are passionate about helping other people and they want as many people as possible to join in that work together. Um, and that's what I hope we continue to, to give to other people is a place to belong, a place to be part of a movement uh, where they feel like they're really making a difference and um, in doing things that are helping their their neighbor and helping themselves. Well, it sounds like you've had some great people and writings to lean on. And, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, everyone standing on the shoulders of other people. And I think that's something that in general entrepreneurs or, or people, you know, focused on social impact that they're, they're scared about, you know, they're nervous about uh, doing and, um, really you have to embrace it and you have to take what you can get in terms of help. And that's how you make it where you need to go is you, you take whatever help you can get, you swallow your ego and you make it happen and you work together. Absolutely. And that's somehow we feel like, you know, it's gotta be really hard 
And it's hard enough, even if you're letting yourself stand on the shoulders of other people. So don't make it harder for yourself. Take the help that's offered to you and say, wow, this is incredible that somebody is offering, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, it, it's hard enough without, with all the help. So it, the more that people can be engaged with each other and helping each other move things along, um, it's just, it's the best way for things to work. Definitely. Is there anything, or before I get to my last question, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to? I would love to know what's something that you've learned as a leader that you think every other leader should know. It's a great question. I, I have a bunch of cliches in my head, but, um, you cliches know, are good too. really the, the thing that first comes to mind is, and probably because it's taped on my monitor is uh, a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So, and I think that's especially important for a leader to know because, you know, it's all about going every step of the way, whether you're a team that has to win one game at a time to get to the championship, or if you're a business that has to get one customer at a time, or you changing one mind at a time, uh, it's important not to make it seem daunting to get to this finish line you want to go to because you just need to get there one step at a time. Ah, that's awesome. I love that. Thank you. I appreciate you throwing in a question for me. So the last thing is, you know, I've been asking all my guests, if you could snap your fingers and fix one thing in the world, what would it be? And how do you think that change would reverberate? So for me, my passion is ending drug prohibition. So that would be the thing I would snap my fingers and end. Um, but really, it's because I want to see more human beings thriving and not being hurt. And so I just see, you know, ending drug prohibition is just one mechanism for that. So my, my ultimate goal would be, how can we have more people thriving in the world, fewer people being harmed by policies that are uh, harmful and more people, you know, living, working, raising a family if they have one, you know, engaging in a community in a productive and healthy way where they're finding meaning in their lives. Uh, those are the things that I want to see happen. I just happen to be working on ending drug prohibition because I think it's just a really big lever towards that goal. Um, but yeah, that, that would be what I would, would do. But the change that I want to see has a lot less to do with drugs and a lot more to do with people and the ability that we give for people to have the, the least amount of obstacles in their lives to a thriving, purposeful um, life where they, they feel like, yes, this is the life that I want to live. Not everybody's going to be able to live the life they want to live, but we can at least stop putting obstacles in their path to at least attempting to get there. Yeah, I love that. I think we need to make the path as smooth as possible for people being able to reach their potential and, you know, making sure that we're not overly putting up barriers and like we have with extreme incarceration in the U.S. and many other things. So um, I think that would be great. And uh, hopefully we're on the way there. Absolutely. I think we are. So I'll be sure, you know, in the notes to link to end it for good. I'll link to your Ted talk, um, to chasing the scream. Can, I can include some info on your conference. Uh, is there anything else that people can do to support you and your impact? 
following us on social media, um, end it for good is at end it for good MS across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'm at Christina B dent across those three as well. So come follow us on social media. Um, you can give, of course, we're a 501 C three that is uh, donor funded. And we've just been really blessed with amazing people who have caught this vision and helped us continue on this journey. So, um, and you can talk to people about it. You know, our, our goal is that one day end up for good. Isn't going to be needed anymore because drug prohibition is going to be over and we don't need to, to fight against it anymore. And so the, the way that happens is more people having an opportunity to rethink what they think about it and being able to kind of potentially change their mind. So um, to move the movement forward can be supporting it for good. And it can also be just talking with the people who trust you and inviting them into a conversation about it. I hope uh, anyone listening that's not yet engaged with ended for good uh, takes the opportunity to check out the site and your social media and perhaps make a donation. And, and, you know, thanks so much for joining me. Um, It's always great talking and hearing your story and how you got where you are. Um, You know, I feel that you're really an inspiration to so many and, I'm excited to see uh, how your journey continues. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. It's just great to be with you and great to see all the work that you're doing. And um, it's just seeing things move forward in the world is a really exciting thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Are The Answer. To find out more, go to peoplearetheanswer.com. Thank you.